0: Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. There are a lot of opinions about the news media, the future of broadcast journalism, and what constitutes professional reporting. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we explore these questions and more by listening to past interviews from former hosts. First up, we hear from Dr. Bill Baker, a Fordham University journalism professor, He talks with former Fordham Conversations host, Mary Wilson, on how to save the ailing print industry.
1: Everybody was always forecasting that print journalism would slowly uh, descend. Nobody knew that it would fall off a cliff, a $50 billion industry. I know a lot about it up close and personal because I'm on the board of a uh, newspaper company. They own 40 newspapers. And uh, it was a company that was about a billion dollars a year in sales up to a a year ago uh, or two years ago and suddenly the company today is bankrupt. What has happened in America is that everybody knew the Internet was coming and coming fast. Nobody realized, I think even the print journalists themselves, that really that journalism in America had been paid for by classified advertising. That's really what was paying for journalism in America. The 60,000 feet on the street journalists in America, most all of them print, were uh, being paid for by classified advertising. Well, the classified advertising business disappeared with the uh, strengthening of the internet and particularly Craigslist and other uh, entities like that. By the time they came to that realization, newspaper journalism was in free fall, but it wasn't catastrophic until the collapse of the economy, which exacerbated the whole problem because advertising also stopped. So in that process, newspapers either went bankrupt, out of business, or started cutting back to such an incredible degree that they started letting people go from the newsroom, the content people. So the the feet-on-the-street journalists in America are estimated now at about 40,000, down from 60,000. Now, you'd say, well, that's sad and unfortunate, but, yeah, we've got television, we've got radio, we've got the Internet. That's where we'll get the news. Uh, You know, it's too bad for these legacy uh, newspapers, but that's the way life is. Well, what most people don't realize is that the electronic media, namely the Internet, television, radio, television, which is where most people really get their news, about 80% of the people in America get their news from TV, the TV and the Internet and radio get their news really from newspapers because there really aren't that many journalists in the electronic media business. So newspapers collapse, they lose their journalists, electronic media winds up doing these highly polarized kind of argument shows where there's lots of heat and no light, we wind up in a country uh, that's a democracy that has its democracy threatened because the people who vote don't have adequate and good information.
2: So two, two possible solutions to the problem of a broken business model with the dawn of the Internet. Uh, those two would be private philanthropy and government support.
1: Private philanthropy will never be enough to replace a $50 billion industry. Never be enough. It will be a wonderful adjunct, but... It's going to always be small and always be kind of a useful incidental kind of a form. We have to figure out how people can ultimately pay for journalism. And they really haven't been. They've only been paying for it indirectly through classified advertising. Well, they have to start in this country figuring that they have to really pay. They've been paying for it through subscriptions to newspapers. So we've got to have the public start paying on the Internet. That's hard in America because America's used to getting news for nothing, news for free, letting somebody else pay uh, to borrow their eyeballs so they could sell them advertising. It's got to be done some other way. I see creating a business model maybe changing two things uh, that are legal. One is changing the copyright law because right now the copyright law says that if you spend five years or two years or one year of your life doing a fabulous investigative story it costs a lot of money to develop it, and you print it, that all those words are protected. So nobody can print your same story without paying you for it. But somebody can summarize your story uh, and not have to pay a nickel and make money off of, uh, off of all of your work. Well, that copyright law has to change so that somehow if you do work and it's summarized or, there, or it's aggregated on somebody else's website and they're making money off of it, you have to somehow get paid for that. That means a change in the copyright law. That will help. The other is is that antitrust laws, which have prohibited newspapers from colluding on pricing, meaning the newspapers all couldn't all get together and say, look, we're going to uh, now start charging on the Internet. If somebody wants news, they have to pay us on the Internet. Right now, any individual newspaper can do that. But they're all afraid to make that move because they're afraid that, oh, well, then you'll stop going to them because you'll go to somebody else and get it for nothing. So everybody's afraid to make that move. But if they can somehow collude legally, <laughs> legally, uh, and that means a change in the antitrust laws, that uh, that may be an answer. So a line of defense is changing the business model. Uh, We've already talked about philanthropy saying it's wonderful but it's just not big enough to support journalism. The third, which is a model that I espoused in my article in The Nation magazine, was supporting public media in America, having the government support public media. And you say, well, we don't want the government involved in journalism. Well, the government's involved in journalism in most of the major free democracies of this world, and they're doing a heck of a job because there are firewalls and protections that don't allow the government to uh, control any of the content. But in America, this huge country of 300 million people, the government puts about $400 million a year into public media. In Britain, that has the BBC, a country one-fifth the size of the United States, the government puts in about $6 billion. And in a country like England, even if every newspaper went out of business, the BBC, with its 5,000 journalists, are enough to sustain a critical mass of journalism in that country until some other business models develop for uh, traditional journalism. So, I would argue that this is a good time with the government bailing everybody else out. Why not bail out journalism in America, which is critical to our free society? And if that's the case, then we have a chance of making it.
2: You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson talking to Dr. Bill Baker. He's calling for a government bailout of public media. Today, about $400 million in public money goes to support public media, which in America is set up like a co-op, Dr. Baker says. In the case of TV, the co-op is PBS, and in the case of radio, it's usually NPR. NPR. Theoretically, the co-op is owned by independent stations, or as you'll hear Dr. Baker refer to them, the public broadcasters.
1: The money that comes from the government right now flows to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is supposed to be the heat shield that separates the government from the public broadcasters, from the independent public broadcasters. The public broadcasters, in turn, pay dues to either NPR or PBS. In the case of PBS and in NPR, there are some very large stations. In the case of PBS, really uh, only three really big stations, which produce the vast majority of the programs on public television. So these very large stations wind up being not only members of the co-op in the sense of taking programs from PBS and paying dues, but also suppliers to the co-op of supplying programming to them.
2: So money from the government um, helps to cover the cost for member stations when they want to buy content but also pay dues to be members. This is
1: Well, in a sense, the m- money that comes from the government, although it's very small, it's a small piece of the average public television station's budget, and the stations can do whatever they want with the money as long as it's a- appropriate use of uh, public television uh, operations most wind up using the money to pay, in the case of television, uh, PBS dues. That's where they theoretically use the money, but it could be used for anything. It's really not enough money to perform real operations, and that's what we need. That's what the system craves, which is the ability to have, at a local level, significant local operations to do local programming and to do local journalism, which then can be somehow combined into a powerful national journalistic force the way the Associated Press performs that service for the newspapers of America and, I might add, for the broadcasters of America.
2: I want to talk about the content that comes from PBS. Um, Before the Internet, if I wanted to watch Charlie Rose or another documentary by Michael Kirk, if I wanted to watch PBS NewsHour, I would turn on my local PBS member station. So my local one was WETA. So I turned that on, and that was how I got to PBS. So the member station was um, crucial to me getting PBS programming. Now I don't have a television, and I don't need one because I can go right online. I watch all my Charlie Rose online. I watch you know, Inside the Meltdown, my quirk documentary online. It's the same way I listen to NPR programming. The member stations are becoming kind of these vestigial structures of pre-Internet. I'm wondering... Why, why should taxpayers have to shell out more than $400 million to pay for member stations that aren't serving them as much as the content that comes from PBS, the content that comes from NPR?
1: Well, wait a minute. You just said that you are getting content from PBS and NPR. And what did I just say? I said that uh, public broadcasters basically use that money, that local money, to keep PBS and NPR alive. That's where the money comes from for PBS and NPR is the local public TV stations and radio stations. Local public radio stations and TV stations, in fact, have the vast majority of the PBS and NPR viewing and listening. Yes, people can get some programs on online. You can't get all the PBS programs online. And you can get many of the public radio programs online. But most people get their programs, most people get those programs from their traditional public radio and television stations. You know, they're not obsolete entities. And if local public television and radio stations had even more resources to do significant local news, that they would become even more important and more a part of the community. If a public radio or television station is simply a repeater of PBS or NPR, They probably aren't serving the real community purpose that they should be. The reason they aren't, that often they wind up being simply repeaters, is they don't have the money to do more. But if they had the money on the scale of what even the BBC has, in a country 20% the size of the United States, we could have a powerful, meaningful local media force that combines nationally into something very significant that benefits our entire society. That's what I'm talking about.
0: Dr. Baker went on to say something that became controversial. He said instead of banks receiving bailout money, news organizations that face being shuttered should be the ones that receive the money. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Up next, we hear from news legend Sam Donaldson. He spoke with WFUV's Claudia Morrell about citizen journalism and its questionable influence on the news cycle. But he begins by discussing his legacy, or lack thereof.
3: No, I don't think that I'm going to have a lasting legacy and that uh, journalism students will learn about my work for uh, decades to come or that some, something will be done in the way of a plot a statue. Uh, I tried to do a good job, and sometimes I think I did. And other times I think I fell short because you can't uh, do anything in life, as you know, without uh, occasionally making a mistake. And I made more than my share, perhaps, but I was lucky. And I served uh, most of my time during a period when broadcast news, it was still something that could be done without the frantic pace of an MTV quick cut, four-second soundbite. Uh, Let's move right ahead to another story. Let's keep the interest up. Uh, And uh, I was fortunate, because I think what happens today is, while there's a lot of excitement and a lot of interest, uh, you lose perspective, you lose uh, depth, you lose the ability to actually, if you're doing a magazine show, as I once did, tell a story in some detail that makes some sense to people. We live such a frantic pace today. It's not just broadcasting, that everything is collapsed into, minute by minute, instead of maybe day by day or week by week. So I was very fortunate to serve most of my time during a period when I could cover stories in a fashion that gave me a chance to do a better job than I think I would do today.
2: Now, you've held many positions over your lifetime. Which job did you find most fulfilling and why?
3: Well, I was identified for a long time with a beat in Washington, several beats that I covered, Capitol Hill, uh, the Supreme Court at one time in the uh, early to middle 60s, but the White House for uh, coverage of President Carter, uh, President Reagan for two terms, and most of President Clinton's second term. And so I think I'm identified with that. But the most fulfilling work that I've done was on a magazine program called Primetime Live, which I did for 10 years, co-anchored with Diane Sawyer. is Primetime Live. Now Diane Sawyer and Sam Donaldson. We did a lot of stories. And some of them, I think, mattered uh, in the same way that 60-minute stories, more often than not, matter. Uh, I'm more proud of some of the work I did there than on covering presidents and doing a minute 30 or a minute 45 or two minutes in a quick report to report the news. And I try to do a good job of that. And I think people who are were interested in politics and interested in the presidency got some information, but it wasn't the same as the information that I was able to deliver in a longer form with more depth, having done more research, more investigations. And so that's what I'm most proud of.
2: Yeah, actually, you talk a lot about uh, the shifting nature in news, and according to Pew's State of the Media, their most recent one, they said a lot A lot of people are losing faith in the news industry, and they uh, cite that nearly one-third of the respondents, or 31 percent, have deserted a news outlet because it no longer provides the news and information they've grown accustomed to. And given your background and how many years you've been in the industry, do you see this as a growing problem?
3: Well, I think there are always changes, but I think there are growing problems, and you've identified one. When I started in this business, we had a long time, really, before a news broadcast. Of course, there was a deadline, uh, but it wasn't minute by minute. Now with the cable networks, uh, with the the Internet, with the blogs, with everyone being a reporter from the standpoint of immediately trying to tell what he or she knows on Facebook or or tweet or what have you, uh, it's too fast in the sense that there's no time for perspective, there's no time to check it, there's no time to see what the critics say about a particular issue, for instance. You just are out there. Second, uh, the trend toward opinion. I like opinions. I read an editorial page, an op-ed page, and uh, for many, many years there have been outlets for uh, people to give their opinion. But today what we get, uh, in talk radio particularly, is a one-sided view. Uh, and the one-sided view has to be very sharp. It can't be thoughtful. It can't take into account someone else's view and say, well, I think that person is wrong, but I understand where they're coming from. It has to be pejorative. It has to be nasty. It has to be somehow something that energizes a base, as if you were talking to true believers, which, of course, most of the people on talk radio are talking to the true believers. They're not... Con- Rush Limbaugh is not converting. A thousand liberals can of uh, every week, he's talking to the people that agree with him. And uh, he then has to keep ahead of the other talkmeisters who are talking to the same people who might be a little bit more interesting. So Rush and Sean, and I could go down the whole list, and they're all fine people. I'm not uh, saying they don't have a right to let all flowers bloom, but uh, it's a competition, not simply to get out some ideas, but to beat the competitor to be the sharpest and the toughest and the roughest and the rudest and what have you. And I think that's a problem. There's not the kind of contemplation of issues that I think our founding fathers uh, thought about. The Internet is a two-edged sword. I would not go back and change it in the sense of depriving people of uh, the use of this new technology. I use it myself. It's changed the world, not just in communication, on business, on politics, every form of a human activity, the internet and the ability to uh, reach other people uh, has transformed the world and is continuing to do so. But it's two-edged sword. again, a lot of information there. You can immediately take a search engine, Google, and just type in something. What was Chaucer's uh, third great poem? And it'll come up with an answer. Uh, it's amazing. On the other hand, the internet allows people who have no knowledge of the facts, uh, you can find on the internet a website that the uh, demonstrates that the Holocaust was a hoax, never happened, and it looks professional. You can find that uh, Lyndon Johnson organized the assassination of John F. Kennedy. There it is. There's the information. You can find that a U.S. Navy submarine shot down TW8-847 over Long Island about 15 years ago, and there was a conspiracy. And, of course, you can find that near Roswell, New Mexico, the spacecraft landed, and little green men... Uh, debt were covered up by thousands of government employees all these years. Uh, It's all there. And without a background, without a perspective, without other things to look at, it destroys truth. It doesn't add to it. Plus the fact that on the Internet and the ability to communicate, uh, reputations are destroyed. The the dear lady who worked for the agriculture department, Shirley Sherrod, was one of the most uh, frequent examples uh, a right-wing uh, blog uh, took half of her speech to the NAACP. Uh, she was an agriculture worker in Georgia. Her job was to help farmers uh, apply for government assistance programs for which they were eligible. She began her speech by saying she's African-American. I thought at first why should I help the white farmers? I mean, they enslaved my uh, forefathers. Uh, wh- why? And then she went on to say, but I soon realized that my job was to help all the farmers, no matter what their race or their color. And I finally enjoyed doing that because that was, A, what helped the country move forward, B, what helped reduce the animosity from ancient wrongs. And it was a wonderful speech. But this guy simply took the first half. And he did it on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he put it on his blog. And with the speed of summer lightning, the Agriculture Department had this woman pulled over to the side of the road sign because they were afraid that night on Fox News that they would be savaged for employing a woman who would say that. Of course, the next day, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, actually listened to the whole speech and realized it had been had, realized that the department had been made a fool of, called Shirley Sherrod, and apologized profusely, begged her to come back and said, we're so sorry we did this, that it was this mistake. And to her credit, in my view, she said, no, I don't think I, I want to do that. Well, that was the Internet. That was a reputation destroyed, well, not actually, because the facts were finally no. I could give you st- story after story of how that second side of the two-edged sword injures. It, it doesn't inform. It doesn't enlighten. It doesn't make our world better. It hurts it. And the reason is not the Internet, in the sense that it's an evil thing. The reason is people who misuse it, and the ability to do that is rampant. So you take all of these things together, and yes, I think there's a, there's a problem today. Uh, we have one of the most enlightened society in our history, because there is more information. You know where to go, you know where to check it, you know what to do with it. At the same time, people who either don't have that ability or don't care misuse these new technologies.
0: Sam Donaldson anchored for ABC News, including 2020, for many years. Lastly, we hear from NPR's Lynn Neary, a Fordham alum. She spoke with former Fordham Conversations host Lauren Namey on how she got her start in radio.
4: And then after Fordham, you were a news anchor for a radio station in North Carolina. How did that come about? Well, that was my first
5: radio job. I'd actually been out of Fordham for a while when I did that. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do in life. So um, I eventually uh, hit upon radio news as uh, something I was interested in, and I started looking for a job, and I uh, saw an advertisement for this job in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and... Um, I really had no experience whatsoever. I had some background in acting, so I, I felt like I could get on the radio and talk. And I sent them a tape, and they liked the way I sounded. And I said, "Well, you know, if you'll let me come down and uh, learn how to do journalism here, then uh, I'm willing to go." And uh, that's that's what happened. And why journalism? What what did you like about journalism? Well, it was interesting. As I said before, I it took me a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to do, and then finally um and just before i went into radio i was studying acting and i really loved acting but um I, it bothered me that I wasn't doing something more socially responsible, and I realized that I needed to do something that I felt like had some kind of, you know, I guess, lasting impact or some kind of uh, effect on society. And journalism seemed to answer that uh, that part of my uh, yearning, I guess. I knew I was a pretty good writer. I knew that, as I said, I could, I could uh, perform, i get on the air. And so I kind of put those
4: three things together, and that's how I came up with um, uh, radio news. And then after working at some smaller stations, you ended up working for NPR. What was that transition like? Uh, well, in between, when, uh, the first station
5: I worked at in, in uh, North Carolina, WRMT, was a commercial station. And I really um, didn't know anything about public radio at that time. But a friend of mine told me, uh, I think you'd be good in public radio. So I started sort of paying attention. One afternoon, one very sort of gray, cold, rainy afternoon in North Carolina, I was sitting in my... Uh, apartment and I had the radio on and all of a sudden I heard this woman's voice come on and she was doing a talk show from the White House and she was at that time it was Jimmy Carter was the president and she was doing a talk show with Jimmy Carter and I thought what is that that is amazing and it was uh, the first time I ever heard NPR, it was Susan Stanberg, who was the first host of uh, All Things Considered, and uh, and that really got me intrigued by it. So I started looking for a job in public radio. I got a job at uh, WSU in Columbus, Ohio, and I was there for a couple of years. And from Columbus, I went to NPR in Washington. And um, by that time, I'd had about three to four years' experience in my belt, so under my belt. So I felt, uh, uh, I felt okay going into NPR. Um, but you know, it was just very exciting, because now I was reporting, I was actually a, a newscaster. But here I was at a national news organization, we were reporting news on a national and international level. Um, I became a newscaster uh, uh, just before the Falkland Wars broke out. Um, and uh, as uh, Beirut was under siege at that time. And um so it was a very, it was it was kind of scary because here I was reporting on these major international events, uh, but it was really thrilling also.
4: And so, what inspired you to go into public radio was All Things Considered, and then you ended up hosting Weekend All Things Considered, right? Yes, yeah. What exactly. was that like?
5: Uh, well. That was a great job. I loved hosting Weekend All Things Considered. It was so much fun. Um, my first co-host was a guy named Alex Chadwick, uh, who I think is one of the best uh, writers who ever uh, worked at NPR. He's not there right now, but um, and he was just a very. We had a very creative crew at that time. It was small, much smaller than it is now, um, but we just were a very creative group of people and. Um, and then I stayed on, after Alec left, I stayed on for another few years. And uh, at that time, I guess it was during that time that some, some major uh, events in the world were happening, the, the, the fall of communism, the release of Nelson Mandela, uh, the Tiananmen Square Massacre. All these things happened while I was hosting Weekend, All Things Considered. Um, and uh, it was just extraordinary to uh, be able to report on these things.
4: And Lynn now as an arts correspondent you cover books and publishing and get to interview authors is that something that you've always wanted to do Uh well you know it just it's very it's a very natural
5: progression it wasn't something that I set out to do uh but uh, at one point I was on the arts desk and at one point my editor came and said uh, we really are deciding that we want to have a beat, uh, a book beat, a books beat and a publishing beat, somebody to cover publishing, because the business is going through big changes right now. And it, it was interesting because as soon as she said it, I thought, oh, yeah, it makes total sense for me to do that. Because I've always done book interviews uh, throughout the time that I've been on inter- on NPR, you know, as a host. And uh, even as a reporter on the Arts Desk, I, I was the one who probably um, did the most book pieces. So um, – it just felt like it just felt like a natural thing for me to do. It's not something I actually sought out. But once it was proposed to me, I liked the idea a lot.
4: I find that interesting because you majored in English and then you went to journalism and now it's come full circle back to English. It's like your career now is a culmination of everything that you've done. It is great that it is uh, happening right now
5: because uh it does feel exactly as you said, that I've come full circle, and doesn't it make total sense for an English major to be doing this? It's a lot of fun because I I get to – I mean, the part of it that's really fun is getting to talk with uh, authors that I've loved over the years. I mean, some of the people I've talked to in the last few years, Barbara Kingsolver, and she, for instance, was a, a really fun for me because I interviewed her, if not for her first novel, perhaps the second novel. I I'm not sure which one it was. But very early on in her career, before anybody had ever heard of her, I interviewed her when I was hosting Weekend All Things Considered. So then, um when her latest novel, *The Lacuna*, came out, I went to and interviewed her uh, in Virginia, and it was just great to meet her. This author that I've been sort of following her career. Um, one of my favorite books is *The Poisonwood Bible* by her. So I also uh, got to inter- got to spend a day with Anne Patchett, the author of *Bel Canto*, another one of my favorite novels. So it's just wonderful to be able to say, I think I'd like to talk to Bel. You know, I'd like to talk to uh, uh, Anne Patchett and and be able to do so. It's- it's
0: great. To hear the full interviews from today's show, check out our page on wfuv.org slash Fordham Conversations. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Focon, that's F-O-C-O-N, and give us a thumbs up on Facebook. I'd like to thank my producer, Alan Hanlick. Keep listening. Cityscape with George Bodarkey is up next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.